Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, August 2nd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler discussion of the latest Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in dot, 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 Hollywood. And uh, we have almost the whole team on today's podcast. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writers, Huatran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So news is still slow. That's hence why we're having the spoiler discussion, which we wanted to have anyways. Actually, Jacob planned this, and then Jacob couldn't be here. So rant, rant. I feel bad. I feel like it's kind of my fault. <laughs> oh, yeah, because uh, he is traveling, and you didn't get a chance to see this until last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and Brad both, right? Uh, Brad, I'm actually kind of surprised you got around to seeing this because you've been busy with that whole move situation. Yeah, I, I made sure to go out of my way to see this just because I didn't. Uh, everyone was talking about it, and I didn't want to wait anymore. So this is the this is the first movie that I had seen in theaters in like a couple weeks since I've been so busy with moving stuff around the house and helping my girlfriend move in and whatnot. Yeah, I, I think I expressed my brief thoughts on this movie on the water cooler. Chris has already given his brief thoughts and extended thoughts on the site uh ben have you said what you thought yeah, of? yeah? Mm-hmm. okay yeah, also... i did on a water cooler as well so i think we're just waiting on uh to see if brad and hc liked it yeah but let's start with brad yes uh i love this movie quite a bit it's um as many people have said said before it's a movie that uh for the most part up until the end is so much more uh tender and, and heartfelt than any other quentin tarantino movie uh, it's you really get to just sink into this uh, brotherly bond between Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters, uh, but you also have you know the the story that kind of runs along the side of it until it all comes together at the end of uh, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, and this it it, it it seems like on like at first on the surface that she doesn't really have much to do, and the connection you know to the other two characters is only t- tendential, you know, literally since she's just an next door neighbor living with Roman Polanski. But I love that so much of what Margot Robbie does with Sharon Tate is just turns you into more than a historical footnote in the Manson murders. It turns her into a real flesh and blood character, someone who has a lot of charm and 
uh, spunk, and she's just so excited, you know, to see herself in a movie and, and really just going through uh, life and enjoying it. And I think that that also is kind of what Tarantino is doing here, is he he revels and, like, sticks in these moments of where things are just so relaxed, and you have these characters who are living in a world that is very quickly passing them by, but they're... And even though you have someone like Rick Dalton who is worried that he's a has-been, you have somebody like Cliff who is still kind of just enjoying what he has while he has it. These long shots of him driving through L.A. and listening to, you know, what is now classic rock. And, you know, I just love how much Tarantino clearly has a passion for this time period and really just let us, like, sink into it. Yeah, not just this time period, but this place in in the world. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, H.T., what did you think? I liked it. Um, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite Tarantino films, but I really liked how wistful and dreamy and, like everyone's saying, tender it is. It really makes you feel like this place um, and this time is a fairy tale that Quentin Tarantino um, has concocted and wants you and wants to live in and wants you to live in. And I especially enjoy the depiction of the friendship between uh, Cliff and Rick Dalton. Um, I absolutely love the chemistry that Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio had, but I also liked how um, just sensitive it was. It felt very sweet and um, something that uh, is something unusual out of uh, depictions of male friendships that we see. And I feel like this film does touch a little bit on um, the idea of white male fragility uh, being something that is another thing that's kind of being lost in this sort of bygone era. Um, You know, the idea that these two characters are kind of being left behind as the world is rapidly changing. And um, that sort of concept of wanting to um, stay in this world. But I will say, um, I can't say that I personally connected to it as much as everyone else. Um, I feel like it was a very specific fantasy that I couldn't personally relate to. I think one of sort of white Americana that um, I enjoyed seeing that fairy tale version of, but couldn't quite um, connect with because uh, it wasn't something that I personally uh, had history with. Uh, for me, like the themes of that era being this loss of innocence uh, was something that I get on a thematic level, but not something on a personal level. Hmm. Okay, we'll get into that a little bit later. This is interesting because I thought – as much as I really enjoyed this film, I thought I was going to be the one person on this podcast, uh, you know, offering criticisms of this, <laughs> of this movie. So I'm, I'm glad to have you as a co-conspirator here, HT. Co-conspirator, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about, I guess, the main relationship at the core of this film, uh, Cliff and Rick. Uh, the Rick character, I guess, was based on um, Burt Reynolds. And is that true, Chris? I mean, there. you know, it's based on a lot of... Uh actors from that era there's definitely burt reynolds elements there and in fact that entire fbi uh episode they shot was actually a recreation of an actual episode with burt reynolds in it so there's definitely stuff there there's also like clint eastwood there because clint eastwood was you know uh, sort of struggling in hollywood and he was doing tv stuff and then he went over to italy and made a bunch of spaghetti westerns and that sort of turned him into a star so you know there's there's bits and pieces of of uh, many actors from that era 
So uh, what do you guys think about this relationship? I, I, I think this is the, you know, the heart of this film. I would actually honestly say that there's not much that actually happens in this movie. If you like, if you were to pull out a piece of paper and write down the the story beats of this movie, they're like, it would probably fail any screenwriting class in all of Hollywood. There's like no structure. There's really no structure, but there is this relationship, and I feel like this relationship is what uh, makes this film work. Um, do you guys agree? Disagree? For sure, they're my favorite part of this film. I thought that I like. I really liked the the dynamic between them, in that Rick Dalton was this insecure actor who yet who still kind of um, you know vacillated between insecurity and egoism where while cliff booth was kind of just there as his best buddy but he wasn't always subservient you know it felt like they were equals in some level and that they were both washed up in a way or being ignored by the changing industry and i just love that uh that sort of um connection that they have the camaraderie that they enjoy it's- yeah, I don't know if I I don't know if I agree that there's no structure, but because the movie is very clearly heading to an end point um, and and building to that over the course of it, um, but I I know what you're talking about in that like it doesn't necessarily fit in like a well, traditional type yeah, of yeah. Thing what what is would... the inciting incident of this movie? Yeah, like I, I don't I don't think Tarantino gives a crap about any of those terms, you know, especially not in this movie. Like, and, and but I feel like our... most of his movies, like you actually do, you could. I mean, I'm not saying they easily conform to the three X structure, but you you can you can find a way to make them conform to the, the you know three X structure in a much easier way. And now, like, okay, we'll we'll get to this later. Go go on. I'm sorry. I'm no, that was, uh, that was that was all. I was just kind of, I, I think you know it, it's not a traditional structure, but there is a structure. It's not yeah. like completely all over the place. Well, okay, I, I guess what I, what I'm saying, and this is my criticism of it, and for some reason it should bother me. This should like this should make this film an F in my mind, but I I really enjoyed this film, and this is probably in like. Uh, I don't know, probably my fourth or fifth Tarantino movie out of his. So it's in the middle there. Um, and I really did enjoy it. But I feel like none of the characters. Someone texted me. One of my friends texted me after seeing it and said, none of the characters make any decision that is meaningful and changes the plot until the third act. Well, I don't think that the lack of an A, B and C uh, in terms of like the narrative uh, mean that there's no structure in this plot. Like I agree with Ben in that it, I think it is leaning towards endpoint, but it is more about just the like you don't have to have yeah. plot as the. Well, let's as talk the about the endpoint though. The movie never establishes that it's leading to that endpoint. That's all dependent on your knowledge of history. Uh, I was going to bring that up, um, like so. So let's let's open that up a little bit. Okay. How, how big of a deal do you guys think it is that Tarantino does not really go out of his way to help the audience out in terms of history? I'm curious what what you all think it, about it, that. It should be like clear what we're talking about is the Manson murders at the at the end of this film. I mean, Charles Manson appears, and they don't even call him Charles Manson. So if you didn't know going into this film, if you went in completely, as uh, Jeff Kanata says in the Slash Filmcast, unsullied. Um, it didn't know that this was about that and maybe didn't recognize Sharon Tate. You might not know until the third act. 
I, uh, of all the criticisms about this movie, I feel like this is the stupidest one. Um, uh, like I, I can see not knowing who Sharon Tate is. I can see that, but I feel like if you don't know who Charles Manson is, yeah, I don't but they know. never say Charles Manson in the movie. Do they really was... need to. I mean, there, there's a guy who looks a lot like Charles Manson in the movie. I, I feel like everyone should know what Charles, who's Charles Manson, Charles Manson is. I, you know, there's the ranch there's the the manson girls like that's that's so so ingrained into pop culture at the same time even if you don't know who charles manson is you know if you've somehow gotten through your entire life without ever knowing uh, who charles manson is uh, the movie does a, a pretty good job establishing that the people involved with him are really bad news um you know the the scene where brad pitt where where he goes to the spawn ranch is is, it's shot like a horror movie there's all this like ominous atmosphere and everyone is just very outwardly creepy and odd seeming and then but then it ends up being a fake out that the guy is just asleep in the bat i mean he might be drunk they're they're still clearly using this this senile old man who barely knows where he is i mean it's still pretty well established that at the very least they're guilty of elder abuse you know if you you know (laughs) and then on top of that you know that whole ending before you know before the big violent ending there's this entire sequence where you know the the manson uh, gang they're sitting in a car talking about murdering people i feel like that that's really all you need to know about these characters yeah but they only say that like when when does it appear like late into the second act like near the Uh end of the movie it's at the very it's at the, it's a, you know right before the big climactic yeah so what i'm ending. talking about i'm talking about like structure in that like if you're a audience member going into this film not knowing that this is about any, anything having to do with the manson murders that you don't know where this is going like it, it kind of is meandering and i feel like that could have been fixed i know you're saying this is the silliest criticism and I, like you know obviously i knew it so it's not like I'm dumb and didn't know where this was heading. Like it was kind of that like bomb that's underneath the table of like a Hitchcock movie or whatever. But um, I do think it could have all been fixed by like a title card at the beginning of the movie. It was like in whatever year. Oh, no, <laughs> be, I, I want to say that would be so say. bad, Peter. No, Why? oh my god, Why would that be? That happens on almost every single buy, like any single true story movie. Like it starts with yeah, like a title. This isn't. In 1969, Charles, like I, that would make it seem so hokey. Like the the movie's not even really about that. It's it's more yeah. about Cliff and Rick. It's more about uh, you know Hollywood. I, I get in that, this... but like I think it's as much as I, this movie is it... good, it's bad script writing and storytelling to not establish what the movie is building up to. <laughs> I agree with Peter to an extent. I don't, I do think that this, you know, this movie is more about this time, this place, these two yeah. characters of a time uh, gone by. But I do think that the Manson family murders, um, the shadow of it looms through the entire film and just kind of saturates every inch of this film so much that you can't escape what it feels like, what this, t- like this, whole horrific incident and what it's leading to. Um, And this is kind of actually where I was talking about earlier with the 
the cultural disconnect I was feeling. Um, I didn't know much about the Manson murders until pretty recently. It was something I never really grew up thinking about or learning about because my parents didn't have that experience. My family didn't have that experience. Um, they came to the U.S. Lo long after that. And um, I felt like this movie felt so much like Tarantino, um, even though it was about these characters, just kind of looking at the Manson family murders and, you know, giving his revisionist take, but giving his like fairy tale version of what if this era could be saved if this horrible incident had never happened. Because it feels like, feels like this, the whole theme of the movie hinges upon the murder and the, the changing of that murder. And, but I, also, um, but I, I honestly, what, actually, what I like about the 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 vague framing of it is, it, I think it does exactly what I wish history would have done, and it makes it, it shines a light on Sharon Tate as a person. It doesn't make Charles Manson famous. I agree. Yeah, it, I think that it glamorizes. Yeah, the, it's, it's it's family the, the really whole idea, well. the whole idea of like of of changing history, doing this revisionist take, is that it's a world where. Charles Manson isn't famous for killing these people, and Sharon Tate isn't lesser known just because she was a victim. And so, <clears throat> for me, I like the idea of it being vague because it takes away that legacy of Charles Manson and his, you know, crazy group of hippies being the most famous part of that era and changing it. And I think that keep, keeping it vague makes it so that the viewer just sees it as, you know, doesn't doesn't you know think about Charles Manson as being this big deal, and it's 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 merely just a footnote in what, you know, what in this movie is, is a fairy tale. And like, I think it ties in with the idea, like Chris said, that the focus is supposed to be on Cliff and Rick and th just this, you know, this time in their lives and not about this horrific event, is, which is what most people remember about this time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, no, go ahead, Ben, you go first. And then I'll go. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I think that, um, that this entire thing is like a true alternate history. It's not, not like you guys have been saying, you know, it's not just that the ending event was altered. It was, it's Tarantino's uh, fantasy of a, a history, a world in which um, everybody knows Sharon Tate for, you know, the person that she was instead of being a statistic or, or, you yeah. know, this, this sort of uh, tragic figure. And like the movie luxuriates in that, like that, that's, you know, this movie is like two hours and 40 minutes or something. And it's so much of just, you know, dipping you into this world and letting you, you know, watch her party and dance and like love life at the Playboy Mansion and, and all of these things and, and like cruise around in a car with, you know, with her husband and like go buy a book and all these little things. And I think if, if Tarantino would have uh, structured it in a way that, that I think Peter is implying or, or, you know, address the, the actual real life Manson murders and what may have happened there, it would have instantly taken away from this special alternate reality that he's trying to create with the entirety of this movie, not just the last well, few minutes. Let me just respond to that really quick. I, I feel like my problem is in objective storytelling. It's not uh, in the execution of this movie. It's that he, uh, Tarantino is trying to subvert expectations Yet he's not setting up those expectations. He's he's counting on you going into this movie with those expectations, and especially people, you know, uh, 
HT, you could take your age and times by two, and that still would not be the amount of years that you do. I mean, like, there are people that don't know about this. And I, I, you know, I have friends who saw this movie and didn't know it was about that until, you know, after the movie, you know. But also, I also don't think it takes away from, from the getting lost in the story. Like, uh, for example. Oh, no, it, uh, de- it definitely doesn't. But I'm just saying, like, I think objectively in storytelling, storytelling, you know, o- overall, I feel like. To subvert expectations, you need to set them up. I don't know. I I wonder if there's like a a. I mean, this is an unanswerable question. There's no way that we can ever know what percentage of people who ever see this movie know about the Manson murders beforehand. But I think what you're probably getting at, Peter, is like a failure in the education system in the United States. (laughs) You know, like for people to to be going into this movie and and be completely unaware of this. I I understand. I I mean, I I guess like people don't need like you know, glorious bastards did not have a thing telling me who Hitler is. Everybody knows who Hitler is. Right. But I do right. think Sharon Tate in the Manson murders is a much smaller thing than here, World here, War II. Here, here is something, here's the best way I, I, I think you should look at this, Peter. So yeah. look at it like, if this were like a Marvel movie, you could think of it as like the Manson <laughs> stuff is, is like Easter eggs for people who, for like nerds who are aware of stuff. Like, you know, the end of the first Avengers movie, you see like that post credit scene with Thanos. You know, I had no idea who the hell Thanos was when I saw that. But Yeah, yeah but Thanos isn't the, the whole third act of that movie. Like that is. But Charles Manson isn't the third act of this movie either. Right. He's he's in one scene. Well, um, I, I guess my other problem with this is like, you know, you have that whole whole scene at the ranch which is great and cinematically great and the tension just ramps up and it's it's this great sequence but it it doesn't progress the plot in any way yes we learn about these people that are living on this ranch but like it's not like they found cliff and uh rick at the end of this movie because of that scene like do you know i mean like it doesn't yeah but why but i feel like part of the movie is it's all about like chance i mean you know the real manson murders of sharon tate like when manson sent his followers to that house he didn't know who was actually even living there it was just happened to he actually thought it was someone else who used to live there that he knew so even that is like you know it's just like they're in the wrong place at the wrong time it's bad luck for people who happen to be in certain you know I, i i guess my problem is yeah I get that, but I guess my problem is that this movie is not building up to a third act in any way other than us knowing that ticking time bomb that is never fully, you know, set up in the movie. Well, I think that's um, that's your – oh, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. I keep – I want to get this quote out because I I feel like we're spending so much on this one thing, and I feel like this sums it up. So Tarantino gave this interview to Time Magazine, and I'm going to read this this full quote. It's a little long, but I feel like it's important. So, all right. Imagine this being said in Quentin Tarantino's really fast, sort of annoying voice. So (laughs) – <clears throat> He's never going to call been... you again, Chris, after that. Time. <laughs> I'm sorry, Quentin, my BFF for life. Um, it would have been easy to come up with some kind of story for Sharon for this film where there would be more characters for her to talk to in order to move the story along. And the same for Rick and Cliff. But I had a situation where I thought we don't need a story. They're the story. Let's just have a day in the life of these characters. And so the idea is that you just follow the three of them as they go about their day. In the case of Sharon, I thought there was something kind of wonderful about this person who lived, who has been defined by the tragedy of her death. 
just the idea that she's driving around and doing errands, doing the kind of things that someone might do in Los Angeles. She's living her life, which is what, in reality, she didn't get a chance to do. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think yes. that's what it all comes down to is that this movie is not about plot. And I think that's that's where you're getting hung up a little bit, Peter, yeah. is that you're you're, you know, spending uh, and well, maybe your friend sort of incepted <laughs> you with this idea about like people affecting the plot, quote unquote, um, that, you know, Tarantino just said, like, this movie is not really about plot. It's about the the ambiance, the atmosphere, the, you know, creating, you know, immersing you in this in this place. And it's not necessarily about this happens because this happens because this happens. It, it doesn't it doesn't. Yeah. It like brazenly uh, uh, avoids and, and throws off the shackles of that type of structure. Okay, can we talk about um, Sharon Tate for a second? Then, like, I I know a lot of people are praising this part of the film and Margot Robbie. I I felt it was actually very underserved. I feel like if you're gonna have her in this movie, I I understand what he's trying to do, but like, why not let her get some kind of vindication, some kind of redemption, other than her just living her life. Well, did she? I mean, I that is the redemption. I think that's the. Re- I think that is the redemption, though. And like, but, but why not have her like show up at that? You know, she hears noises. No, she goes. I, like, I feel like what? she doesn't need to have that, though. I feel like what, what the quote that Chris said, the redemption, like what Brad is pointing to, is is that she lives, and that's the beauty of it. Um, that's her revenge in a way, and that she gets to live. Right, and you know, it, it's important to remember that. The Sharon Tate in this movie, she's both, you know, this version of Sharon Tate, but she's also like an ideal. Like she's not, she's almost like ethereal and almost like the best way I I, I compare it to is um like Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks, where she's this sort of figure that represent that like sort of ties everything together. And the you know the Twin Peaks revival was all about not all about, but I had this whole thing where where Dale Cooper went back in time and saved Sharon Tate from being killed and it changed everything. And, save save Laura Palmer, but yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Save, save Laura Palmer. So uh, you know the way Tarantino is using Sharon Tate in this movie, he's using you know he yes he's establishing her as this real carefree sort of person you know, but he's also looking at her as like this figurehead for the era and, you know, sort of like saying that like, you know, the, the, the age of old Hollywood officially died with Sharon Tate dying. And that gave birth to, you know, the seventies and the, the new Hollywood era. And he's, he's changing that he's, he's stopping that sort of happening at the same time. I feel like the movie is also acknowledging that you can't really stop <laughs> The future. One of the things I really like about the movie is, is yeah, Sharon Tate lives, but Rick Dalton, yeah, he gets invited up to Sharon Tate's house and he gets to hang out with them. But I still get the sense that his career is kind of dead. Like, I, I feel like there's not anything really left for him in, in the business. And I feel like that's Tarantino's way of saying, like, you know, you yes, you can sort of alter the future, but, uh, you know, sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. That is really interesting, Chris, because my takeaway from this, and I want to hear what, what Brad and H.G. and Peter have to say about this, too, is my takeaway from the very end was that, uh, that, that Rick Dalton, this was maybe the beginning of a new wave of his career, like meeting Sharon. You know, he, he says earlier, like, oh, man, I'm living next to the guy who directed Rosemary's Baby, like he sort of implies like if he could just meet with him, maybe, you know, things could sort of turn around for him in a big way. And he's just coming back off of 
these uh, spaghetti western movies that theoretically will will do a lot for his career, assuming that this character is indeed modeled on guys like Clint Eastwood. And for him to meet with Sharon at the very end, I, I think there's an implication there. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's just a, like that's a what I thought. A difference of opinion, or or you know, a different interpretation. But I I read it as like, oh wow, he he's meeting Sharon. That means he's going to meet Roman Polanski. That means he's probably going to either get cast in a Polanski movie or or be introduced to a new circle of people that are sort of uh, you know higher up in in the Hollywood uh, strata than he is. And maybe this is. Like that—that's the whole thing. Where I'm not really sure what Tarantino is actually saying with with the ending of this movie. But anyway, before we get into that, what uh, HT and, and Brad, what did you guys make of that? That's actually similar to my reading too. I was going to save this comparison for later, but um, when we're talking about the final shots, but um, I saw this as uh, sort of Tarantino's antithesis to The Great Gatsby, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we have imagery that recalls a lot of the great Gatsby, the pool, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio being there. The fact that all of these characters are more symbolic and archetypal than anything, even though they are real, they feel like real, living, breathing, bleeding human beings. At the same time, they feel like um, symbols in a tale of Americana. And I feel like that is something that once upon a time in Hollywood is trying to do, it's giving this uh, different version of Americana, that different version of the American dream. And when Rick Dalton walks up the gates, um, that's him, that's, you know, Gatsby finally finding his green light. That's the him finally living that fairy tale ending versus the tragedy that the American dream actually invites. That's, that's, uh, the Gatsby comparison is interesting, especially because that just immediately made me think about the fact that uh, Rick has that poster of himself out in front of his thing, which almost kind of ties to the idea of that, you know, that the the, the billboard with the the glasses on it, you know. Oh, like I, I just I just thought of that just the position. Not, not, I don't necessarily know if there's any like deeper meaning beyond that, but like I think tying into the idea of this loss of innocence in Hollywood, I the, I, I agree with the reading of that this kind of sets up Rick Dalton to continue his career almost as like Tarantino providing a way for the era that he loves in Hollywood the most to continue for these fading stars to get new life and work alongside the filmmakers that would change the scape of cinema throughout the 1970s uh, instead of losing, you know, the Hollywood of the 1960s that led up to it. You know, that brings us into the Hollywood of 1969. Is this a fully realized version? Is this an idealized version? Like, what are we seeing here? Oh, it's definitely idealized. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I don't want to be the person to point it out, but there are very few people of color in this version of 1969 Hollywood. And while that's something that is sort of indicative of what the landscape was at the time, I felt like even more so it felt like Tarantino idealizing and romanticizing this glamorous version of uh, of the 1960s and wanting to... Uh, keep it alive, like uh, like Brad was saying, and that was something that I I respected, but couldn't personally connect with because I felt like it was something that was so specific of a fantasy for him, um, and something that I uh, felt like uh, almost did away with the touching themes of those fading stars that we see with Rick Dalton and, and his arc and his kind of coming to terms with the fact that his careers is a uh, is at an 
a standstill and um, that his his era of masculinity is is coming to an end. So it was something that was a little complicated for me in terms of just like the ending and those things and like what Tarantino was trying to say. I, I think uh, that's why I didn't quite sit with me that well. I mean, uh, personally, I, I love Hollywood. I, I do agree with everything you just said. But um, seeing this version of Hollywood, the 1969 version, you know, all these places that uh, Ben and I drive by every day, you know, I've eaten at some of these places. Like, these are places that still exist in Hollywood. And um, it, it, maybe that made me enjoy the movie a little bit more than I, I probably should have based on what I'm, you know, all my criticism and stuff. It, it was cool to live in that idealized version of Hollywood. But uh, I, I, I guess now that you mentioned it, like, you know, it didn't even occur to me that, yeah, there isn't that many people of color in this movie. Although maybe that's something to be said. Like, wasn't the Manson murderers, like, weren't they trying to start a race war? Yeah, yes, that they was were. part of it. Yeah, yeah, helped her skelter. Yeah. Um, okay, let's. Uh, I guess let's talk about uh, the FBI episode. What did you guys think of that? Oh man, that's like that's the my greatest, favorite part of the movie. Greatest yeah. director's yeah. commentary. Like those guys are just yeah, it's like talking about that. You know, like this guy's a dick. Like <laughs> oh, nice leap. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I like. I like Chris. Chris, you posted about this on Twitter, and I like this idea, and I wish that they would do it of having uh rick and cliff do commentary for once upon a time in hollywood like it have leo and brad do it in character i think that's such a good idea oh wow it would be great but yeah i think this scene specifically is the crystallization of rick and cliff's friendship and why i loved it so much and how surprising and sweet it was and it was uh for sure like my favorite part of the movie yeah um let's talk about the soundtrack because i feel like with ter- any Tarantino movie, people t- like to talk about the soundtrack. This one, I feel like, is not as talked about as most of his other f- films. I- am I wrong? I don't know. I-, I knew a couple of these songs, but it didn't really hit me. Yeah. I-, I guess I've never been somebody who's obsessed over Tarantino's music choices, but I, I know there are a ton of people out there and probably a lot of people listening to this who who do. Um, so I wonder if any of you guys, like... You know, do you go out and like buy Tarantino soundtracks, you know, as soon as you can? Like, what, what's your relationship with Tarantino and his the way he uses music? Like, has that uh, ever hit you on an emotional level versus an intellectual level? I mean, I think his soundtracks are, are fantastic. I, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't buy music anymore. I, you know, listen to it on, on Spotify. But, you know, when I was younger, I used to buy it. Um, but the soundtrack for this is great. Um, it's, it's nonstop, uh, almost more so than usual. Like it feels like it's just constantly like blaring in the background. And I, I really loved it. And I was, I listened to an interview with him, uh, the other day with Tarantino the other day where he was specifically talking about the soundtrack and how he put this soundtrack together was he, he basically had people go out and find uh, recordings of the era era of um, the local um, Hollywood radio stations. Uh, you know, people who would just literally just hit record on a, on a, a tape player to record whatever was on the radio. And he, you know, he, he went through hours and hours of these tapes and that's how he sort of picked out the songs for the movie. And he was saying like, you know, what was, you know, maybe a number one hit nationally may not have been the same thing as a number one hit specifically in Los Angeles. So, you know, in other words, like 
the stations in LA, they weren't playing the same sort of music that was being played worldwide. And that's sort of why there's not like very familiar cuts on here, although there are a few, but there's a lot of like, I guess obscure is the word I would use for it because he, he was combing through this, this, these radio station ads and stuff like that. I wonder how much of it was like, um, you know how detailed he got in terms of like this song was on at this time of day so i'm going to show brad pitt driving at this time of day with this music <laughs> on like i wonder if he got down to that level or if he sort of like tweaked it and took some liberties a little bit but. i don't I, I feel like he probably didn't go for accuracy in that regard with it simply because i saw somebody point out on twitter i think it was eric snyder that it's it's pointed out that the the final events happen on like the hottest day of the year but the actual day that year in California, it was not really hot at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right, fair enough. But yeah, but I, um, in addition to the soundtrack, uh, one of the things that I love that Chris kind of alluded to here is that um, when they're, I love the extended shots of when they're driving around, hearing the different uh, radio commercials for oh, yeah. like totally. old, old school products. Like I, I, like I could have sat and listened to that for a long time, just watching the shots of them driving. It was, it, it just was just an extra. You know, little superfluous detail, but that helps really uh, bring you into to 1969 Hollywood. And um, even if you if you stick around for uh, the credits too, which features a, um, a fun gag with Rick, Rick Dalton doing a commercial, um, there's a an audio Easter egg, I guess, if you will, where the, uh, Quentin Tarantino used a real radio clip of Adam West and Burt Ward doing a giveaway on a Los Angeles radio station as Batman and Robin. Um, and so it's just, just like fun little stuff like that, that he just pulled as many details as he could to, you know, make 1969 Hollywood. Yeah, no, uh, great to mention that. Uh, no, back to the music for one second. I, I think what my criticism of the music is, is not that, uh, obviously it works in this movie and it make it, it, it's, it's interesting, unique choices, but I feel like usually coming out of a Tarantino film, you have an obscure track or two that like hits popular culture. You know, you, you come out of Pulp Fiction and there's like stuff in there that was, was not like number one hits that became number one hits. And the same with like Kill Bill or, you know, any of his movies actually, um, maybe not Jackie Brown. Actually, no, even that song from Jackie Brown, I think probably got a boost. Um, but I don't, I don't know. It might also be that I'm not listening to the radio and stuff, but it doesn't seem like any of these tracks are, or like popping in the same yeah. way. Yeah, I that... feel like this soundtrack works almost like in the context of a rock opera or an opera in a way. It's part yeah. of the the uh, fabric of the universe, and that's why it feels so essential to this movie. Rather than being just a pop soundtrack, it feels like something that's just part of the the landscape. I mean, you are right. I, filmmakers like Tarantino and even. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson and Aronofsky, I feel like in their careers, early on in their careers, they were a lot more bold and uh, stylistic with their choices. And I feel like as they're getting into their later careers are more just trying to establish that sense of world and story. And it's not about like noticing a cool, clever uh, shot or edit or, you know, song. So I, I, I would say that's probably true here with Tarantino as well. Um, we need to fast forward a little bit. Let's talk about uh, the Bruce Lee scene. Uh, I know the family of Bruce Lee was kind of upset about the scene. Uh, Chris, are they wrong? 
Um, I would never presume to tell the family of Bruce Lee that they're wrong. About... Tell, tell them they're wrong, Chris. No, no, no. Um, you know, uh, I, I definitely see where they're coming from. Um, I feel like this is more a problem of audiences than what Tarantino is, is trying to do. Um, because I get it. Every criticism I've read of this scene, even the one from Bruce Lee's family was saying like when they saw the film, the audience was like laughing and they felt like they were laughing at their father. And I really don't think that's how Tarantino is trying to portray him here. I do think he's trying to bring Bruce Lee down to like a human level, if that makes sense, because Bruce Lee has become this, you know, iconic, almost like godlike figure. And he's trying, Tarantino is trying not just Bruce Lee, but everyone in this movie, he's trying to show that they're, you know, real people. Um, at the same time, I also feel like it's important to remember this scene is being perceived specifically from uh, Cliff's point of view. Like it's a flashback to something Cliff is remembering. And uh, I feel like that makes it sort of like an unreliable narrator situation because, you know, Cliff obviously in his mind, he's going to look at that entire scene as him coming out ahead and obviously he's going to remember bruce lee as being a jerk and him being justified and i feel like that's sort of like the lens you have to look at that scene through it's entirely through his memory and at the same time that that scene when it cuts back to cliff on the roof remembering it he says like ah fair enough and it's sort of him acknowledging that he was actually being the dick in that situation in retrospect is uh I'm wondering too because a lot of this movie are characters that are based on real people, but they aren't real people. You know, Cliff and Rick, uh, as we've discussed. But you know, Bruce Lee is Bruce Lee. So why? Uh, I'm wondering why Quentin why Quentin Tarantino made that distinction with that character in that scene and not others. Well, I know Tarantino has always uh, declared himself a devout fan of yeah. Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee himself was somewhat tied to Sharon Tate because he trained her for several films. And, uh, at one point, uh, during like, I, this is what I read that, uh, Polanski had actually, um, accused Bruce Lee of being involved in the murders at some point. So, um, I think that was part of the reason why he was included in it. In it. Hmm. I do want to say, um, I was, I had a little trepidation coming into this scene in particular because, uh, of all the discourse that I'd read about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before I went to see the movie, and I tried to keep away from the discourse as much as possible, the Bruce Lee scene did actually touch a nerve with me. And um, there's a great, really even-handed um, article from the LA Times that touches on everything that Chris actually just mentioned. Um, but I don't think I would necessarily agree with the humanizing element of it. Um, I think that in the really brief scene that we see of him, it's like less than a minute long. Um, I don't think that's enough time to humanize him. And in the end, it just feels like cutting down to size someone who is depicted in this kind of cartoonish way. But it's a great impression by Mike Moe. Um, and in the scenes that we see of him where that are wordless, I actually think that that ends up growing and um, developing his character better than just like this scene. And I also kind of felt to me like it did feel like a fantasy scene because it was something that Cliff was 
what for me I've interpreted as misremembering. And uh, I thought that that was clear enough for me, but I could also see it not being clear enough for the audience. And for me, it just the the overall impact of the scene did kind of uh, sit uncomfortably with me. Okay, Chris mentioned, uh, you know, the memories and us reliving, like, almost like flashback or memories. Uh, there is this strange scene where Cliff maybe kills his wife. Is it an accident? Is it uh, intentional? HT, uh, what, what did you make of this this scene? I feel like it might be a little bit problematic in, in way the way it's presented of, like, her kind of, being the shrill yeah. character and him uh, basically aiming a, a gun at him and then it cutting away before anything happens. Um, yeah, I didn't really know what to make of the scene either. I thought that perhaps it was some sort of quote unquote uh, Easter egg or like reference to the times or maybe it was something that was speaking to that overarching theme of um rugged masculinity being left behind in the times and something that these characters were having to grapple with and were not uh, equipped to grapple with and that they could no longer get away with this kind of thing, although he did get away with it. So um, I, well, I well, feel that, like well, it was well, the question something I wanted, like that. The question I wanted to ask you is like the, the wife obviously died because we mm -hmm. were told that, um, but he's not in jail. Uh, I mean, that could be, the results of different times. I don't know. But do you think it was intentional for him to kill her? Do you think it was an accident? And how did that change your perception of that character in the movie? I think it's mm. implied that it's not uh, an accident. I mean, the, the fact that they make her like this person who is clearly just like uh, yelling at him and insulting him and like basically just like egging him on to like you know do something about her I guess and just the way he's sitting there with uh, you know uh, um, that well, I don't even know what kind of gun it was like a it harpoon wasn't... gun or yeah. like a spear gun or something yeah but, but sitting I, I, with, I, he's sitting on, his, I, on, sitting on his lap and it's pointed at her and he, it looks like he's just like just waiting and contemplating it and I feel like it probably did happen, but he maybe made it look like it was some kind of accident or something. I mean, I, I feel like it, it's one of those things where there's no way to know and it's deliberately vague. Yeah. Because, you know, as we all know, Tarantino is not shy about showing violence. So the fact that he deliberately made this scene uh, without an answer is, is his way of sort of like asking a tough question because that – that scene really does – how you interpret that scene really changes how you interpret the ending because if it is saying that Cliff Booth is this, like, cold-blooded murderer who just flat-up murdered his wife, um, he he's secretly a, a violent sort of sociopath, and him getting away with killing the Manson girls at the end is, is like – Tarantino saying like this guy can literally get away with murder no matter what he does at the same time I don't know if it's like wishful thinking or what but I get the impression that it was an accident for two reasons one and I've seen other people this point this out the the gun going off accident thing feels like a direct tie back to Pulp Fiction where John Travolta is driving in the car with the gun on the headrest and they hit a like a pothole and he accidentally blows that guy's head off. And you know, the, that wasn't like an intentional murder. It just happened that way. And I feel like 
that you know they're on the water it's deliberately choppy brad pitt is clearly drunk and he just happens to have that gun pointed at her um another thing is like it just seems really out of character for the way we see cliff as a guy throughout the movie like he seems like a really nice guy for lack of you know he loves his dog he's got this really good relationship with cliff and there's even i'm with rick and there's you know that lengthy scene with uh margaret qualley's character where he deliberately you know asks her age and he doesn't you know he could obviously she's like throwing herself at him and he he deliberately goes out of the way to not you know have any sort of sex with her and he really cares about george spawn like he he goes to the ranch he's convinced they're using this old man for some reason so there are all these hints throughout the movie that you know, deep down Cliff is kind of a nice guy. So uh, that is what makes me think it was an accident. But at the same time, there's no real right answer, I think. Yeah. And and really quickly, just to, and I know we've pretty much come to the end of this particular part of the discussion, but really quick, I just wanted to mention that when I was on uh, sets all the time, like several years ago out here in LA, you would hear stories about different people. And it's just, I think it's part of like the, the, gossipy sort of environment that happens when um you get movie stars together and people you know uh in you know working together in, in a, such a tight way for months on end or whatever um there there was this rumor going around that this really really prominent tv personality was cheating on his wife and like i have no idea but that, if that was true or not but all the crew guys were talking about it all the time and uh, for Kurt Russell's character, the stunt guy or the stunt coordinator or whatever he was in this movie to raise that uh, issue with uh, Rick Dalton and for Dalton to be like, really? Like, you believe that shit? It just sort of struck me as like yet another one of those examples that Chris was just talking about where like you could consider this to be one of those things that that if it was an accident, you could easily see how word could spread throughout the community that it was a murder because, you know, people are just sort of gossipy and, and especially in this sort of environment. So anyway, I, I'm not like trying yeah. to I think it's purposely ambiguous, like you said, and, and it does add this extra complexity that that uh, is unanswerable. But I think it's it's interesting to talk about nonetheless. I guess what I'm confused, I, I like it, but I'm confused of what Tarantino was trying to co- accomplish with that bit of backstory to that character. I mean, I think I, he's just trying to, to complicate somebody like yeah. to, to make you stop and think and to, to maybe not have it be just a clear case of white hat, black hat, you know, that kind of thing. I think it's I, just yeah. to give you a, a moment of pause. Yeah, I agree. It um, it makes you question everything he says and does more. And I think that makes just his character and his dynamic with all the other characters much more interesting. OK, uh, we should probably mention the scene with the child actor. It's probably one of the more uh I don't know. Like, you don't really get to see this side of Tarantino in these movies. I know, Chris, you you talked about this. I think on the water cooler episode, but I I just love the interaction between Rick and this child actor. I'm pretty sure this is like the only Tarantino movie with a child in it. I don't think. I, I, am I wrong there? Or no, you I, have um, Kill Bill with. Uh, all right, the daughter. Child, yeah. yeah. Two daughters, daughter. yeah. All right, so yeah, there is that. But yeah, that. The the stuff with the child actress, her name is Julia Butters, and she's she's so good in this. Is so uh, weirdly sweet, and uh, I really love. You know, not only do I love her in this scene, I really love the way DiCaprio plays this 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 scene, and just the character in general, because he plays it in this way where, yeah, you can take it as like a uh, uh, humorous, you can take it as like it's it's meant to be sort of c- comedic, but at the same time, there's this really 
poignant like sadness to that DiCaprio character. Like that part where he's talking about the book that he's reading and the character in the book is almost like identical to his point of view. And he just starts like breaking down and that I was really like touched by that. Just the way both how DiCaprio handles it and how that, that the, the child actress like comforts him. And then the whole payoff later where she tells him that was like the best acting she's ever seen. And, you know, on, on one level that should sort of be like, well, what does she know? She's a kid. But on another level, he he's really touched by that. Like he's really, really taken aback by that. And he's so like happy to get that compliment. And uh, it's just a really, a really oddly sweet sequence. Also, uh, did you guys, this is just a side thing. Do you guys notice that, that what um the girl who played Uma Thurman's daughter in Kill Bill was one of the hippies in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, no, I, no, I, I missed didn't that. Know that. She's yeah, in she, the car. She, she's the one who drives away. She's well. She's the one who actually sells Brad Pitt uh, the acid cigarette. No, you're yeah. H.E., you're thinking of Uma Thurman's actual daughter, who is actually in the movie. But we're oh, not, okay. Yeah, <laughs> never the, mind the, then. The actress, the actress who plays Uma Thurman's daughter in Kill Bill is uh, Perla Haney Jardine. And she plays the hippie that sells Brad Pitt the acid cigarette. That's cool. Yeah. Did not know that. We also saw Zoe Bell, who is uh, the star of, what, Death Proof? Mm-hmm. Yep. She's yeah. also Tarantino's stunt coordinator for this movie and Death Proof. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about that uh, that long scene that we see Rick Dalton film for the that cowboy TV show, which I feel like... And I feel like this is my overall thought on this movie. In any other movie that shouldn't work, that we're like taking a break from the story of this film to show you a scene from a TV show that the character is filming, like an extended, like not like just a small bit of a scene, but extended scene, but it's so delightful. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is like, you know, Tarantino wanted to be an actor, and I think he and the the scene with the the child actor that we were just talking about sort of speaks to this as well. He he has like a real um, appreciation and respect for the craft of acting, and I think this movie is maybe like, you know, he he's had some some elements of that woven throughout a lot of his films. Like even going back to Reservoir Dogs and and Tim Roth's character, like you could tell that he cares a lot about. Uh, what it means to be an actor and and how we all act within our lives like that's something that that sort of um, runs throughout Tarantino's entire filmography but I think you know in a movie about actors um, this is his most like blatant way of of um, depicting that and showing that and sort of like literalizing that theme and uh, that idea and like also the uh, the mixture of high and low that Tarantino is sort of known for like uh, blending pop cultural elements that a lot of people would write off as trash or whatever. Like, you know, nobody really cares. About, nobody talks about Lancer anymore. You know, like this, this sort of like almost forgotten show from the 1950s and, and 60s or whatever. Um, but for him to sort of drop us into an episode of that and treat it in, in the cinematic language, um, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, the camera isn't pulled back. You don't see boom mics and you don't see the crew making it it is we are immersed in the perspective of this almost forgotten tv show and it's i think it's tarantino's way of saying like you know this stuff was just as valid then as uh you know some of the maybe not just as valid but but uh was valid you know not it wasn't just a, a throwaway kind of piece of entertainment that you know people spent time 
and and effort uh, and through their hearts and souls into making stuff like this. And I think it's just his way of sort of like tipping the cap to that. But I don't know. That was just my read on it. Yeah. Uh, another great sequence in this movie is that sequence we mentioned before at Spawn Ranch. What did you guys think of the Spawn Ranch sequence? Because I, I, I feel like, you know, this is typical Tarantino. We, we, we feel the dread. We feel where it's headed. But we know that he's going to subvert expectations in some way. And then when he does, and the, the guy doesn't, you know, the guy has worked with him but doesn't even remember him. Uh, what What is Tarantino saying with this, Chris? Um, I think uh, so there, you know, there's, there's many ways to interpret this, this scene. You know, one is obviously it establishes the Manson family in the context of this movie and what they're doing. And, you know, on another level, if you are familiar with the Manson family, you're going to know a lot of stuff that's going on here and, you know, the background, you know, the stuff with the, the horses and, uh, you know, uh, on another level, it's showing, Wait, what, what? what is going on there? Because I actually don't know enough about the Manson family to know what's going on with the horses. Well, you know, they're 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 making money by giving tours of, of the ranch on horseback, which is yeah. you know what what they were doing. At the same time, there was actually like a murder that happened on the Spawn Ranch that 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 guy Tex carried out, which you know they don't talk about that at all in the movie. But if you're familiar with the story, you're going to know that. Um, the way I I see that scene uh, is so you know Brad Pitt he goes in down the hallway he he talks to Bruce Stern's character and Bruce Stern's character is is you know this old <laughs> washed up guy who doesn't know where he is and he doesn't have anyone taking care of him and he's just you know he's got the only one who's taking care of him is is Dakota Fanning's character Squeaky From who is one of the Manson girls and she's clearly just using this guy they're all using this guy for his land you know to live rent free and it sort of establishes this this old man who's just all alone in the world and you know the heart of this movie is really that friendship between DiCaprio and and Pitt's characters and you know there's that whole final scene which I I love so much where Brad Pitt's like in the in the ambulance and DiCaprio says like oh you're a really good friend and he says I try and I feel like that's sort of like the perfect summation of what this movie is really about. It's really about that friendship between these two guys. And by showing, you know, this old lonely man who doesn't have like, a friend, right. It's sort of like cliff realizing that, you know, he really, he needs, cause I, I feel like the movie makes a big deal of showing that Rick needs cliff more than cliff needs Rick. You know, cliff is doing all these, these odd jobs for Rick and, you know, what is, what is Cliff getting out of this relationship other than the occasional stunt work? And I feel like that sort of lays the ground for that, that, you know, what he's getting out of it is like a friendship and, you know, Cliff, Cliff, his wife is dead. Everyone is spreading these rumors about him being a killer. So it's unlikely he has really any friends in the world. And I feel like that scene is, is, is him sort of, you know, being reassured that, you know, his friendship with, with Rick is something that, that, you know, is, is worth keeping. Okay. I, I think we've gone overboard with this podcast already, but we need to talk about this final, like 30 minutes of the film, which is kind of when things kick into high gear, the third act where, uh, they show up and he yells at them for making too much noise with the car, uh, outside, uh, is and that, that action is what causes them to go for his house and not Sharon's. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
what is Tarantino saying with this change in history? Yeah, that's the that's the my big question with this because a lot of people have pointed out that this movie. Um, with what he does at the end, it sort of makes the entire movie feel like it's sort of uh, culturally conservative, where Tarantino is like preserving this period that he loves instead of, um, I guess, allowing progress to to, I mean, a progress at a cost, at a horrible human cost uh, that happened in real life. But in, instead of you know he he's rewriting history, so theoretically that wouldn't happen in the same way and chris I, I wonder if you could like expound a little bit on your reading of the end of the movie because you, you talked about this a little bit earlier but um you know it, with like you you reading it in the way that uh that maybe rick dalton rick dalton's career is over do you think that because tarantino uh do you think that rick's career may be over because tarantino himself has such an appreciation for the sort of uh a new Hollywood era and like he would never um, create an alternate world where that doesn't happen in the same way. Like what, what did you think about that? I, I'm really curious to see how many people have this opinion that I have, or if I'm just like 100% way off here, but really the way I, I interpret that ending as being, you know, more melancholy than it is just by the way Tarantino shoots it and, and the way the characters carry it. I'm not talking about the, the, the Manson attack, which is, uh, we should talk about the tone of that, but I'm talking about how, uh, you know, the, that final shot where it's that, that crane shot up above, there's something really like lonely and sad about that shot to me where, you know, Sharon Tate welcomes Rick into the house and yeah, he's being welcomed in, but I just can't picture him becoming a movie star. And I think that's like sort of the way DiCaprio plays the character. He plays him as this like goofball. And I, yeah, his career is getting better because he's doing, you know, the, these spaghetti Westerns, but there's just something about the way the tone carries itself. And I don't know, maybe a part of it is like, I'm, I'm letting the real, what really happened sort of cloud my mind. And I, you know, I'm acknowledging that Hollywood did change. And, but I get the interpretation that Tarantino, he wants to save Sharon Tate, not so much that he wants to save that era. And again, I could be mm-hmm. way off here, but that's how I see it. And just the way, like, even though Tarantino, even though DiCaprio has that whole, you know, you're a good friend thing with Cliff, I get this impression that they're still going to go their own separate ways because that whole build up to that end scene is 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 um rick cutting cliff loose because he's just gotten married and he can't afford to pay him anymore and Mm -hmm. i really get the impression that yeah you know he still thinks of cliff as a good friend but there's i still sort of get like they're they're going their own ways i mean they literally are going their own ways in that final shot where where cliff is being you know taken to the hospital and rick stays behind and that's sort of why i get that melancholy tone from the end but i i was gonna say if his career is does you know, blossom because of this, then he would have the money to hire Rick. I mean, yeah, there's, there's that too. I, you know, I, I feel like, like the, or hire the, Cliff, sorry, like the boat scene, there's really no right or wrong answer here. It's more like interpreting how, you know, I feel like that this, this change of history raises a million questions because, mm-hmm. you know, Charles Manson, all right. Yeah. He didn't get away with killing Sharon Tate here or not get away, but he didn't carry that out. But who's to say, he didn't go off and kill someone else. And maybe 
Sharon Tate living resulted in some other movie star being killed. And, you know, I feel like that's sort of, for lack of a better word, the fun of the ending, because, yeah, it changes history, but it also writes a whole new history that we don't really know anything about. It's this whole alternate universe. I really like what you said, Chris, about um, Tarantino wanting to save Sharon Tate and not wanting to save this era of history, because that was something that I've been kind of mulling over and deciding and trying to think of whether I liked the film or not, because I kind of felt like the this cultural fixation on the Manson murders uh, ascribes more importance to it and more historical relevancy to it than it should. I feel like this idea that this one event ended a whole era and ended this era of innocence is almost a little reductive. And wait, this is just my personal opinion. I can't speak to a larger historical um, you know, effects of the Manson murders. I know it did have an historical effect, but I feel like the cultural fixation on it has always been a little bit too, I don't know, morbid or ghoulish to me. Um, but I like what you said, uh, Chris, about this being more about just wanting to save a person, uh, save people who were you know, wrongfully murdered. And um, I did really like the melancholy in that final scene when she's walking up to Sharon Tate's house. And it occurred to me that he's walking up there with ghosts and that these people in reality, hmm. um, you know, never survived. And it has that melancholy and that wistfulness that I think the rest of the film uh, did successfully um, give. Uh, but he, and here, like, uh, that's and that's why that's that kind of left an effect on me. But, yeah, I think the overall um, themes of the movie was uh, I'm still like. I'm still kind of processing. Right. And, you know, to, to, to piggyback off of that, like, yeah, he, uh, you know, I said earlier in that Sharon Tate sort of represents this era, the character in the film. But I, I do feel like the what Tarantino is going for with this ending where he lets not just Sharon Tate, but all the people in that house live because they were all killed. You know, the, her, her, the hairdresser friend that was secretly in love with her and uh, the, the, the Folgers heiress, they were all murdered and, you know, he doesn't just save Sharon Tate, he saves all of them. And I really do feel like that ending is less about saving the era and more about robbing Charles Manson and his, his followers of the notoriety they, they got. Because like you were saying, HT, it did become, it's become this really ghoulish sideshow. Like, uh, you know, like the Charles Manson became this sort of like pop icon because of yeah. this. And that's, really shitty when you think about it. Um, when I was in New Orleans, there's this thing called the Museum of Death and <laughs> that's you know morbid to begin with. And it has all this stuff about you know crime scenes and stuff like that. And at the Museum of Death, they actually had like real crime scene photos from the, this murder. And they, they, there's like a, a picture of Sharon Tate dead. And I wish I had like never gone in that building <sighs> and seen that because it really fucked me up like just seeing her dead body and she you know she's pregnant and i feel like this ending it it erases that it it gets rid of that terrible fate these characters suffered and it it gives them their life back and you know that couldn't happen in real life you know there's um the uh, stephanie zacharak's review in time magazine which is like one of my favorite movie reviews of all time she says at the end of it I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here but like in real life no one could save sharon tate but 
you know, Tarantino and Margot Robbie's performance, it gives her the happy ending she never really had. And I think that's sort of why I am interpreting the ending to sort of be, it's, it's happy for Sharon Tate, but Rick Dalton is still pretty much on the same course he's always been on. Well, the- I guess, to, I guess, I guess to kind of add to that too, is the, just a final touch is that the, the title for the movie happens right in that final shot once upon a time in Hollywood. And that's exactly when, what, what you would call this fairy tale world that Quentin Tarantino created kind of begins. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I do think that that title card placement is really, really deliberate. Just the way it, it's because it, you know, the, it, it could have happened on a black screen, but he literally puts it over that shot. Yeah. Is there also a sadness there that obviously Rick has, you know, killed these evil murdering group, but he, it almost seems like this film is projecting that he's getting more satisfaction and like he feels more fulfilled that the star next door knows who he is. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's part of the, that's one of the yeah. reasons I love that scene too, the way DiCaprio plays it, where uh, Jay Sebring tells him that Margot Robbie, uh, that Sharon Tate thinks of him as a movie star, whereas the whole time, you know, he was thinking of her as the movie star and he, he looks so touched by that. It's, it's really, that again, ties into like the melancholy of that ending. Yeah, I think it's intentional and it goes into what Chris was saying earlier about, uh, de-glamorizing and taking away the importance of the Manson murders. It's about, um, you know, Rick Dalton and his, that his getting validation from this person that he's always admired and Sharon Tate living and all of that stuff and just kind of for leaving the Mansons in the dust. Now I'm thinking more about that final shot, Chris, and you have me wondering if like, <laughs> you know, that sort of God's eye view looking down, you know, you, you were just saying like he could have put the title screen over a, uh, over a black or the title over a black screen, but he chose to leave it up there. He could have moved that camera down into the house as the credits were rolling or something and let you see what happens when Rick Dalton actually interacts with Sharon Tate in, in a meaningful way inside, but he keeps it outside. He keeps it, you know, that part left to the imagination. And like, it's also like this God's eye view of like, you know, it, it, it sends us out of the theater looking looking almost like as if we're uh, stepping back from peering into another world. And yeah, I, I wonder if, uh, I don't know, you got me thinking there, Chris. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I, if I'm like fully ready to change my interpretation of what may happen to Rick Dalton, but um, like the visual language of the scene right. uh, or that shot maybe does support your read a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a world. We, we, we glimpse this world and now we have to leave. We were not invited any further than this. It's sort of like, um, sort of like the field of dreams. It's like Field of Dreams where James Earl Jones is about to go in the cornfield and Kevin Costner is like, well, I want to go too. And Ray Liotta is like, no, you can't. That We're, we're Kevin Costner and Carantino is Ray Liotta saying you yeah. got to stay outside. I think no matter what your interpretation, it is the happily ever after ending of this fairy tale. It, there's no, it's not a coincidence that the movie is once upon a time in Hollywood. It's mm-hmm. it's about that fairy tale ending, whether you think it's something more for Rick or whether it's just his happy ending is it isn't being validated by Sharon Tate and then meeting her finally. Right. For sure. Um, do we have any final thoughts on this film? I, I think we've probably said it all, but uh, anybody I, want I to- do think I do think the one thing we should touch on is the the tone of the Manson scene where where Cliff Booth brutally murders three people. Oh um, yes. Because, because talk this about seems that. to have this is 
drummed up controversy I wasn't expecting where people make it sound like they feel bad for the Manson family, which is really what? weird to me because there, well, there's this argument going on here and maybe this ties into people not being as aware of the Manson murders as I always thought they were. But, you know, the brutality of that scene, and it is exceedingly brutal. Um, people seem to be like thinking like, oh, Tarantino is reveling in this violence and he is, but I feel like the reason he does that, he makes it so violent is because he's so angry at these characters for what mm-hmm. they did. And rightfully so, because I, again, I come back to that museum of death image where I saw Sharon Tate's dead body. And it's like, well, that would make me angry too. And it's him sort of like taking out this rage and frustration on these, you know, shitty characters who are just in real life, just terrible people. And, uh, but there is this, this faction of, of uh, film Twitter or whatever you want to call it, who are like, Oh, Tarantino has gone too far. He shouldn't have those, those poor Manson family members. So I, I, I don't know if it was anyone else taken aback by this beyond, you know, what, acknowledging that yes, it's violent. I did think it was more violent than a lot of the stuff that Tarantino has done. It reminded me of like S Craig Zoller levels of, of violence. Um, but I, I never once like felt bad for those people. I did think a little bit, I have to admit about like the optics of, you know, this brutal violence against women that, that is in a movie that is made in 2019. Um, and, you know, we're just like culturally um, more attuned to uh, have a red flag raised when we see something like that, because it's just so um, far afield from what is in a traditional movie these days um, or, or what should be, or, or what our ideals should be, you know, as a society. Um, but I think, I think you're right, Chris. I mean, for me, it was just like so much like um, this catharsis that he was putting into and and hoping that we felt of writing this historic wrong and and maybe even like um, uh, condemning us a little bit as a society as a whole for, you know, for for spending so much time fixating on the Manson murders and turning them into this sort of like uh, pop cultural icon instead of just like you know, relegating them to the dustbin of history kind of thing. Right. And I, I guess this really, really does tie back into how much you know about the case. And, uh, you know, the the real Susan Atkins, she's one of the, the, the women who gets killed at the end there. Like in real life, Sharon Tate was like, you know, I'm pregnant. Please don't kill me. And she said, like, I have no sympathy for you and your baby, bitch. She said before stabbing her to death and like. I have no sympathy for a carrot for someone in real life who did that. I'm not saying I would smash their face yeah. into a fireplace or whatever like that, but I feel like in the, the world of this film where, you know, you can get away with that. It makes sense why he's going so brutal on these people because they in turn were brutal in real life. It's sort of like he's turning the tables on them. He's, he's turning their needless brutality back on them. Do you think also there's a commentary here about Tarantino's films himself? Because Tarantino, you know, is a filmmaker that known for his violence in his films. And throughout this film, there's moments where it could happen. There's, you know, that sequence, that uh, flashback sequence um, that we talked about with uh, with Cliff and his wife. And then there's the sequence at the Spawn Ranch where things could go down. Nothing happens. And then in almost spectacular fashion at the end of this movie, you know, the bad guys get their due in probably even more horrific ways than some people want, obviously. But do, do you think this is at all Tarantino speaking about his own storytelling? 
I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good read on that. And uh, mm-hmm. I actually yeah. hadn't considered it, but I think that I think you might be dead on with that. Yeah, that didn't do, that didn't occur to me, but I think that's a, probably a, a correct read. Yeah. There's one thing that I um, wanted to mention uh, that my favorite line in the whole movie is during this part of the film when uh, I think it's Tex like sort of bursts in the door and he's got the gun pulled on Cliff and he says. Um, you know, I am the devil or something like that. And, and uh, Cliff is like, no, it was something stupid or like, you, you know, your name, like, what was your name? And he's like, I'm the devil. I'm here to do the devil's business or something. And, and Cliff uh, yeah, is just like, I'm here to do devil shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. He, he recounts it as, as he said something about doing devil shit later when he's in the ambulance, but um, just like the deflating of the, the iconography there and like the, um, you know, the, the, that's the kind of thing that like the culture has latched onto over the past, whatever, 50 years. And like that, those kinds of lines are what makes the, the Mansons and the family and all that stuff. So like scary to us as a culture, but for Tarantino to just, you know, wait one beat and then have Brad Pitt's character be like, no, you're, you're a fucking idiot. It's not, I'm not scared at whatever (laughs) thing you're trying to do here. You're just some fucking guy out from this ranch that I saw earlier. Um, And then, and then to completely obliterate everybody. I just thought that was like a really, um, you know, it's like this movie in a nutshell, that line to me. I think even the, even the, the scene before that too, of like when we spend that we spend in the car with them, when they're like planning what they're going to do, you get this idea that they're not these like, masterminds or anything like that they're they're clearly just flying by the seat of their pants like they're like the one girl comes up with like uh some stupid idea what they should do like next they're like oh yeah that's a that's a good idea and then though they they get duped by the one person who says oh i forgot my knife and then they she just leaves them behind and uh, leaves with the car it's maya hawk is that something that actually happened um, it didn't happen like that. There was one of the, the girls there didn't want anyone to get killed. And she, she lied and said like, Oh, someone's coming to stop them, but it didn't work. So it didn't actually happen like that. Huh. Um, you know, we have talked a bit about where Rick ends up. Uh, where do we imagine Cliff ends up after the events of this movie? Uh, he goes back to Spawn Ranch and takes over. No. <laughs> I actually had a, a, a kind of a tragic thought chain of thoughts as to um, how that might play out because because the ending is kind of so ambiguous. Is I thought it would be really sad, but also somewhat I don't know a, appropriate in a way of it because Cliff very clearly says, says like you don't have to come to the hospital. Is like you know stay you know with your your wife and you know whatnot. And I thought it would just be really sad if like. Rick didn't see Cliff again, and Cliff died at the hospital. Huh. What do you think? There's a possibility at all in this world, uh, you know, <laughs> that you know Cliff has a history of murder. You know, there's manslaughter on his record. That and now with what happened here, do you think there's a, a chance that he would get time or something for the what he actually did to these people? I feel like you could say self-defense because uh, they sort of yeah. broke into the house, but I don't know, maybe. But um, also they're being brutally, you know, head smashed I, in. <laughs> yeah, there's one more thing that I want to mention here, and I, I feel stupid even bringing it up because I, I don't agree with it personally, but I feel like the listeners might want to know for anybody who's sort of having trouble with the last part of this movie. I saw this theory posted on, I think it was on Uproxx, about the acid cigarette and the fact that Brad Pitt smokes, smokes that right before this brutality that maybe the entire 
you know the the uh, deaths of the the Manton clan are are way more um, heightened and, and violent because uh, it's it's all this sort of acid trip and like really uh, Rick Dalton actually has the flamethrower from fourteen fists of McCluskey like out in the back like that's such a, a ludicrous image like I mean I love it just on its face as like a real thing that actually happens within the world of this movie but this theory is trying to. Uh, you know, posit that like maybe the ending is not exactly what what we think. And, and I think the author was just saying like, you know, he had a lot of trouble with like wrapping his mind around the ending of this movie and that that theory made him process it a little bit better. So uh, I don't need that personally. And I, I prefer to take the movie at, at face value, but maybe that will be beneficial to some of our listeners out there who who maybe have some issues with it or something. I think that theory works in the fantasy aspect of this movie and the ending especially. And it feels like it, it's not saying that it this um, the murder of the Manson family was only a fantasy, but I think it plays into just that um, sort of the overall wishful themes of, of the movie itself. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay, I think that officially brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all our work at SlashFilm.com. I'll link uh, Chris's extensive review of this film in the show notes. Uh, the Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. Do you have some theories that we didn't bring up? Do you have some uh, observations that we missed uh send them to me at peter at slash home.com and please as always rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you on monday